Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today, brilliantly, I got to speak to Scott Fraser of the University of Southern California about courses at Woods Hole. It was the most exhausting summer I've ever spent, and just the most enlightening. Essential lab equipment. The first piece of equipment I bought at Caltech was a full restaurant-sized cappuccino-making machine. And new recruits. These are the new kittens that are the addition to the family. All this in the episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today I've got my joined here with Scott Fraser from the University of Southern California. Scott, hiya. Hi, very good okay. to spend time with you. Yeah, do you know, and it's, it's because of spending time with you in the past that I really wanted to do this today. Uh, in fact, this whole idea of uh, talking to different scientists came from my conversation with yourself back in Dublin, Elmig, uh, 2018, I think it was. Uh, I think it was. Yeah, and actually, I think you, you, you just come off the plane. I think I met you in the, the bar just to say hello briefly. You were eating. Uh, and then we had a, we caught up after at coffee. And I, I was intimidated a bit. I had to introduce you for a plenary session. I thought, how do I do that? And actually, I just got chatting with you, and I thought, actually, your backstory, uh, off record, is far is probably more revealing about the personality and, and what made you so successful. Uh, so, so this is why I thought it'd be great for others to hear these sorts of stories uh, as we go along. So I'm going to pitch in with you very quickly. Let's start kick this off. What was your first experience? What was your first microscope that you used? My first microscope was at Johns Hopkins when I was a grad student. And there was a Zeiss Universal in a closet in parts. And so I had to figure out which part went with which with no manual. And, uh, and of course, it was an, an older model, so it wasn't uh, state-of-the-art in any way. But it was a great learning experience, pulling it together and, uh, and using it and figuring out uh, everything from the Namarski to the uh, Baroque camera system that it had. So, so you, you are officially a closet microscopist at the start. <laughs> I was a closet <laughs> microscopist. The great thing about being in a department like the Hopkins Biophysics Department is there was a lot of uh, skeletons and microscopes and electrodes and everything else you could imagine in the closets. And so half of my thesis involved finding those bits and pieces and assembling them into uh, the equipment that I needed. So... I'm going to be guessing from, so you were biophysics, your first interaction was in your PhD days, grad day. Were you ever, did you ever think you'd become a, a serious microscopist? Was that ever on your radar when you started your degree or anything else? Or was microscopy something that you, you came upon through your studies? So I had been a physics student as an undergrad and uh, spent a lot of my time building equipment, mostly to do measurements on lipid membranes, uh, so bilayers and such. So my specialty had been developing um, uh, sort of low noise electronics and uh, deploying vibration control and all the other things. Um, so I never thought at that point that the optics would be more than just a tool to help me get the light in there and get an image and make sure that the specimen was where I thought it was. And it was then when I was a grad student that I made the mistake of looking through a microscope and um, seeing an embryo. And it was a... Uh, a moment, I, I don't know, I guess you call them epiphanies or whatever, but it's, it was phenomenal to see um, the cells develop, to, to watch how after a microsurgery the cells could heal in so quickly. And then every question I asked of the person that was showing me the embryo, the answer was, we don't know. And that seemed fantastic. 
And so that sort of got me to suddenly change fields. And it also got me to realize that I needed to use the microscope now as the way of interacting with my specimen rather than the uh, electronics I'd used before. Right. So that's, a, that, that's quite a change. So you went from physics to biophysics. Mm -hmm. So you weren't, you, you're not a trained biologist, obviously. So how have you, yeah, well, well, I say many, obviously. Many, of my, many of my friends would say obviously. <laughs> <laughs> did I really just say that? No. I, originally you weren't a biologist. So how did, you, how did you find picking up a completely different science? So it was, uh, it was fascinating, each of the transitions. And uh, those transitions are both terrifying and fun. Um, I uh, was a student at Johns Hopkins and had started doing biophysics, as I mentioned, at, as an undergrad, uh, working on lipid membranes. And um, when I came to the Hopkins department, I, I thought I was going to um, work on membranes still and membrane transduction and things of that sort. I had the sudden change in the, in the fall when I made the mistake of looking through a microscope. And I was lucky that the Woods Hole embryology course was that upcoming sun, summer. And uh, my PhD advisor had been asked to, uh, to serve on the faculty there. So I applied and got into the course. Um, and um, it was uh, being dropped into the deep end of the pool, quite literally, because um, I would ask questions and I would get answers. I remember the first time I was helping somebody with setting up a microscope. It was an old universal they had found in a closet at Woods Hole. And they, we looked through and there's just beautiful specimen in the Marski and it's rainbows of colors and everything else. I said, that's spectacular. What is that? And, uh, and she turned to me and said, that's a pluteus. And the only answer, the only way you can answer that is, oh, but I had no idea what a pluteus was. So I started doing my, uh, my reading for that course by having two or three other books open at the same time. This is uh, long pre-Google. So this was the, uh, the uh, paper version of, of Google searches. So there was always a word in one book that didn't make sense. So I'd have to look in the other book to, to try to, to make it all uh, come together. Um, I was very lucky there because the course just uh, really, the, the Woods Hole Embryology course just really gives you an exposure, an in-depth exposure to many different systems. And at that point, Woods Hole was really a meeting ground for all the scientists in all the fields that I could imagine. And so uh, it was uh, a chance to be a disciple of many different people with really interesting uh, backgrounds. Yeah, that, actually, oddly, relatively similar myself. Uh, mm -hmm. So actually, I'm a, I was a lipid protein interaction biochemist uh, and through to biophysics. Uh, and actually, I went on a course at EMBL. Uh, really? And it was that course with Rainer Peppercock, Philip Bastians, Timo Zimmerman, uh, Jens that really inspired me to, to carry on and, ch and to change my career tack uh, and to move into the direction of the technology uh, mm -hmm. rather than studying the biology, which is obviously is a PhD mm -hmm. from my side as a, in the biology department. It was all about the biology, but it was a technology that interested me most. And that's where I, I went forward as well. Those courses can be really inspirational. Oh yeah. They just, they just open up. It was, it was the most exhausting summer I've ever spent and just the most enlightening. And, uh, you know, many times people talk about these courses at EMBL or Woods Hole or at Cold Spring Harbor as being really life-changing moments. And, okay. and they, they are. Uh, you sent me some pictures in advance of this and this is one of them. So, I have no idea what this picture is of, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I recognize a former version of me. Um, and this is just after we moved from UC Irvine to Caltech. And at, uh, at UC Irvine, we had started um, building uh, uh, 
low light level microscopes to watch cell migrations and cell lineages and to watch synaptic connections rearrange inside of live animals. Um, we, at that point, had a friend of a friend who serviced x-ray machines at the airport, and we were able to get them to sell us a, uh, a used SIP camera. Uh, it was dumb luck because the fact that it had been bombarded with the x-rays uh, actually reduced the noise level and let us uh, make some uh, very simple uh, electronics because this is before it was easy to buy good frame grabbers and all. What you can't see in this picture is that there is a complete wall of, uh, of Nimbin computer parts up above that are doing the frame grabbing. You can see, um, uh, what was that called? A Nuvicon and a SIT camera from Hamamatsu. This is after we moved us to Caltech, so we actually had some money and could buy um, real cameras. Um, and that, that's when we discovered the, the lucky thing previously of having a SIT camera that was used that had a, a lower noise. And so <clears throat> this was our, our, our first setup. It's when we were making us a, a image processing uh, control uh, or an image acquisition uh, program and then a processing program that we called VIDM for video imaging. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great time. So, so you're obviously used to putting things like that together yourself. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how much of that is influenced by your, uh, your outside interests? And I believe that you make your own amplifiers at home. Yeah, so it's very interesting the way that hobbies can end up influencing things. So I've, I've uh, enjoyed building electronics and building devices for a long time. And um, I mentioned that my work as an undergrad was building very low noise electronics. And my goal was to make those very low noise so they could make measurements and also very reliable. So when the one out of 10 experiments works, the equipment doesn't fail. Um, <clears throat> so all those same uh, sort of things matter if you want to sit down and listen to a stereo uh, in a relaxing way. And so, um, so some of the same practices that I'd learned building electronics for the home to be reliable, I used in the lab. And then when in the lab, when I figured out a way to beat down the noise or to increase the signal to noise more notably, then I would apply that back to what I had built at home. And so it was a, a very fun virtuous cycle. We so did I, that I, in, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, so I've gone. I, I know this is also a podcast, so we'll, I'll have to talk people through this. But go on, can you show us some of your amplifiers? I, I can, but I, I, you're, you're go going on. to get motion sick if I show them go to on, you. Go for it. Okay, so, um, so I'm here. One of them, that's the, uh, a tube amplifier behind that uh, has the kitten proofing on it right now. Those are quad electrostatic speakers in front of it. If those of you who know old English uh, uh, companies, that's uh, the turntable. I guess that's the second turntable I built that's sitting there. Wow. Uh, that was built by a consortium of people that uh, built different parts. And that's where some of my equipment building came in. So some of the vibration control that went into the motor pod and into the turntable platter um, uh, is stuff that I'd done to beat down the low level vibration so I could study, um, so I could do imaging better and so I could do um, uh, lipid bilayers, which were very sensitive vibrations better. And that turntable, the base of it, the base of it is a very special wood that, that had to be collected in, in a, a, it's only available in uh, Scandinavia in a store called Ikea. It's a cutting board. Uh, so, so part, as you know, part of doing imaging and building equipment is finding things in the junk drawer that you can uh, make work. 
And so um, what I needed was a piece of uh, wood that was thick and relatively deadened. And, um, and so rather than uh, making one, I found the, the uh, cutting board was just the right thing. So, um, so, so the cage on the amps, was that to protect the amps or to protect your kittens? It was to protect the kittens. The kittens have been running around here. Oh, wow, they're still around. These are, these are the new kittens that are the addition to the family. They came from a farm in Fresno. A friend was up visiting her brother. And so they are uh, 11 weeks old almost. And some of the first things that had to happen is um, that I had to kitten-proof things. You can see that the turntable already had a, a cover on it, but kittens and turntables are like to amuse one another. <laughs> the, uh, the tube amplifier actually, since it's off, I can show you. So that big cage structure is now off the amp and... The big cage oh, structure wow. is off. Okay. So those are uh, 211 uh, broadcast triodes. So that's a single-ended triode amplifier. The cats, I took this off, the, the tube cage. And this is built uh, a lot like the way that we put enclosures around microscopes. So when we do enclosures around microscopes, you don't want to have holes that let the, the dark leak out. Yeah. So, uh, but but in this case, I needed something that would let the heat uh, out. So, this enclosure fits on to the top with uh, with Velcro. And those tubes, it's a it's a very good way of heating the house and of generating very nice music, but not very efficiently. I think the amplifier puts out about 12 or 15 amps, 12 or 15 watts. So they're, uh, they're flea powered uh, amplifiers. Some of mine are even uh, 10 times less power than that. Right. So that innovation at home and mm -hmm. at work and at home and at work, mm -hmm. obviously uh, from my own side, I think uh, I was obviously I'm a lot younger. So you know, I, I didn't know you before this point. But I do recall when the Meta came out, uh, I, I remember picking up the Meta information, reading the background, and your name was all over it, uh, both in the Zeiss literature and otherwise. And the Meta, uh, which I think was, was very disruptive to the market when it came out, uh, and is still in existence today. And actually, our, our users use the Quasar, which is essentially the spectral head, a lot now, especially on the latest editions with the sensitivity. But you were behind that, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the the meta was was very fun because a lot of things um, developed through me complaining. Um, so I guess I should explain that. But um, at Caltech, there was the round table, and the round table was at the university club where people would just go and sit down and the person that sat next to you could be somebody from your department it could be somebody from physics or astronomy or you, you never know what it's going to be so it's not unlike say high table at, at some of the colleges in the uk um, so a great mixing ground and so a lot of the innovations um, that we got involved in uh, were the product of sort of chance interactions. So people saying what's new, and even, either they had just had a major success or they just had a major disaster. And both of those were, um, were sort of engines of, of innovation because people would say, well, you know, I, I don't know, but, but in our field, and so, um, I was sitting in that case with a couple people from JPL that were in the remote sensing community. And I was describing this problem we were having with bleed through of different labels. And they um, started ridiculing me because they said that when they flew a satellite over, they did not have a giant blue filter they could put in front of the sun 
so that the earth was only illuminated with blue light so they could study the light that came back. So their approach was to, uh, to use a spectrometer and then to uh, decompose that signal and be able to um, be able to um, you know make the best of what they're getting back and and make the beautiful maps that we've all seen and the beautiful photographs we've all seen. I have to rescue my power cord. My my special assistants are in the room still, and they are uh, they are fascinated with the laptop power cord. Anyway. So, so the JPL folks knew how to deal with the signal that came back and the signal was never perfect and they made uh, their best, uh, you know, images out of decomposing that image. Of course, they had way, way, way more photons per pixel. So we then uh, talked to some friends at uh, JPL and we were able to get one of the spectral filters, the tunable filters that uh, was being used um, on one of the Mars probes. Um, this was a spare, so we didn't uh, ransack it. We arranged to, to borrow it and installed it in one of the microscopes and it was a voice activated uh, filter we would take an image and then I would tell the postdoc to change the wavelength and then we'd, change, we'd take another image. So those first, the first images to see if these decomposing approaches could work in the low signal to noise regime that is optical microscopy happened with uh, a group of us sitting in the dark and changing wavelengths and doing a band sequential collection and of course that spectrometer was not built to be very light efficient or anything else, but its results showed that it could work. And what's always fun for me in building equipment is going from um, a complete failure to something that fails a little bit less. And once you know that it's gonna fail a little bit less, once you've got even a taste of success, you can see what you could optimize. And so, Clearly a band sequential is not a great way to collect light efficiently. If you've got infinite amounts of light coming back off of the Earth's surface or something or off of Mars, you can uh, afford that, but we couldn't. So that's where the design for the meta then came from, is we uh, built a spectrometer and uh, collected the photons as efficiently as we could. I, 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 thank you. <laughs> well, I should say that, that, that I think half of my career is taking advantage of uh, situations that bring people that have problems and that have solutions into the same room. And so my first purchase, the first piece of equipment I bought at Caltech was a full restaurant size cappuccino making machine. And I got ridiculed by that until everybody and their dogs started coming to my conference room to uh, make a coffee and then sit down. And they would either come just after something worked or just after something failed. So there must have been in that first year of that coffee machine, there was probably a dozen or two dozen patents filed just based on the fact that people would come in and they would either be elated or depressed, but they would talk to the other people that were there stealing coffee. So, so bringing things together, bringing people together and causing that sort of interaction is, is I think a, a real important way for us to, um, to innovate. I mean, otherwise, you know, you can end up coming up with the perfect mousetrap but for a mouse that nobody has, or you know, a, a solution yeah. for a problem nobody has. What's great about something like meeting up at the, at the cappuccino machine is you hear about the problem that's depressing them that moment. And if you've got a solution for it or think you could tailor it, it's a way to, to move forward. Which is really cool advice. And I, you hear it quite often as well. And there's no point inventing something for the sake of it. Uh, yeah, it's always good to have a reason and a target and an application right. at the end of it. Right. Uh, so I, I read that literature in the that brochure. I was envious, and then several years later, uh, 
the Zeiss came out with their 880 Aerie scan. And I was chuffed. This is when my head gets really big because I was the first beta test site out of Jena, out to the factory, and it came to York. And I didn't know where it was going next. And then actually, I think it came to you next and over to Jan Ellenberg at EMBL. And I, when the brochures released, my name was in there. I was so proud. And then you were there and I realized, wow, I was before Scott. I was before Jan. And then it dawned on me. They only did that to make sure it was good enough to send to you and then on to Jan. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that at all. I, I think one of the really fun things about interacting with companies is that um, they have to test things and make it robust enough that the, um, the least capable user can still get good results from it. So if you build something around your lab, it could be much less user friendly. And so it's been great fun for me to work with companies in the molecular biology areas and in the microscopy areas to realize what it takes to go those extra yards to make it robust. And uh, so it's really fun watching the beta process happen because um, often companies um, are surprised by how creative people are in making the, the machine fail. So, so we, we had, uh, in fact, one of the co-inventors of the Meta um, was used by almost everybody in the lab eventually to be the, um, I don't know, the stress test of any new machine. So we would troubleshoot it. We'd be certain that it could not fail, it could not crash. And then we'd say, well, okay, now it's ready for Rusty. And Rusty would come in and within 30 seconds, he would have either frozen it, you know, smoke seldom came out of the machine, but, yeah. but sometimes. So it's, it's a fun process to think about how to make these tools robust enough. And so you, I'm glad that you were lucky enough to be there as the first beta site. Because I'm sure it was beautiful, but I'm sure it also had its growing pains. Uh, it was pretty good, actually, out of the box, I've got to say. Uh, we did beta testing for the Zen software way back in 2005, 2006 of Zen, and that, that, was, that was a lot rustier. And actually, you're right. Actually, what we had to do is try and get lots of different users. Because what you realize is everyone uses software differently. They don't conform to a nice, easy ritual because the microscope mm -hmm. is so diverse. As soon as you enter it, you have to go. There isn't one route of buttons to press. They optimize in different ways. And the only way to find the bugs is to go through that sort of process itself. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that no, was... It's, it's great fun to be in a, a to work with companies uh, on that and watch as, as they take it from something that's a good idea and then figure out if there's something practical, something that you could uh, afford to deploy and afford to sell. I mean, if people were willing to buy things for an infinite price, you could afford to develop a lot of uh, new tools. Yeah. Uh, so think, thinking about size, actually, I, one of my most memorable moments of meeting you, it's another, it's another eating occasion. There's a lot of food in this. Uh -oh. uh, and this, I think, was EMC 2012. Uh, and size actually took, took us out for dinner. So there was yourself, uh, Jeff Lickman, Tony Wilson, uh, and a load of the Zeiss individuals. Yes, yes. And I remember turning up in an open neck collar, as I am now. You were also open neck, as was Tony and Jeff, but however, you all, ha all had jackets on, whereas I didn't. And Zeiss were all booted well, and suited. We weren't from Europe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. hardened northerner, used to the cold yes, weather. Right, you're used to the cold mind, weather. Like the rest of us were softies. But anyway, okay. Uh, so I remember, I think, I was either you or Tony who commented on the fact, oh, have you not got a jacket? <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, again, feeling a bit out of my league here in the, in the company. And then, uh, to my recollection as well, we sat around and Zeiss all had their ties on. And mm -hmm. at one point, I don't know, do you remember this? Yes, but I don't remember what, what suddenly did it. If there was the, uh, the blessing of somebody that said you could take your ties off or if just one of them did. I think it might have been Jim Sharp who started loosening his tie and that was like yep. permission for all of them. Yeah, they, 
they all, all of them, and there must have been what, 10 of them maybe? That all, close. Took, all took their ties off simultaneously. It, it was, you know, at one point I thought I might have been in a striptease. It was so simultaneous. <laughs> Uh, one of those full, one of those full Monty moments. Yes. <laughs> no offense to them, but they do look like a full Monty type of crowd as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That 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 would have been an even more memorable evening. Yes. So that that was really cool. So thinking of food, I'm going to ask you some really quick fire questions. Okay. okay. So you got to choose one or the other. So, eat in, eat out. Uh, eat in. Eat in. Cook or wash up? Cook. Is that because your partner's no good at cooking? No, she's great at cooking, but I, I, uh, I love cooking. I am the world's worst baker because um, I always, I, I bake the way that, or I, I cook the way that I build equipment. I'm always trying, okay, if I try to change this, it'll get either better or worse. And doing that in baking, I've made several versions of pita bread that were not intended to be pita bread. <laughs> Just things that don't come out. But I, I love cooking. I love pulling things together. And I also love learning from, from colleagues. So one of the great things about being at a place like Woods Hole, where I you know, went for about 20 years to then later be on the faculty, is uh, the, the recipe exchanges. So we would do big dinners for one another on the faculty, big dinners for the students. And uh, it's just a great way to, um, to get to chat to people and get to learn from them. And of course, it's such a great mix of cultures and, and backgrounds and, and tastes and all that, um, that it, it's, cooking is just a, a real sort of, dis it's a, a discovery field for me. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, I love that. And, and I'm probably not the world's best uh, washing up person. So uh, around the lab or in the kitchen. So that, that may also enter into it. That's definitely what dishwashers are for anyway. Go on, carry on. Tea or coffee? Uh, coffee, almost always. But I love, I love good tea. And so good tea like Coer tea or, or well, it, anyway, there's many different teas. And that's another one that's great, mi mixing of cultures. Book or TV? TV now. I'm, uh, I do so much reading that I, I used to read a huge amount more, but I just, uh, I, I think A, TV has gotten a lot better, and B, uh, I've gotten less patient with reading. Yeah, you have to be one of the worst at quick fire questions ever. What? <laughs> I get long answers for every quick fire answer. Go on, what are uh -oh. you watching on TV at the moment? Um, we are re-watching BoJack Horseman, which I, I don't know if you've ever seen, but oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a bizarre animated show in which characters are uh, either uh, animals or, or humans. Um, there's one married couple that involves a human uh, uh, journalist who's married to a yellow Labrador named Mr. Peanut Butter. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting and, uh, it has, uh, and it, it's probably more human than most shows that have real humans in it. So that's, that's really a, a lot of fun. Okay. So the next few questions. I also I love have... old movies though. Old, old video, uh, old movies are, are spectacular. And so that's, that's the, the main thing that we enjoy. I think lockdown has certainly enabled a lot more old movies to be watched. So, yes. so it's certainly on TV because they've got a film for what they can't film by filming live and stuff. So there's certainly been more on. Uh, except my children just aren't really into anything that looks old. Just doesn't have the same ambience around it. There's, there's a difference. Bike, uh, walk or run? Walk. Bike or car? Car. 
Oh, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe this picture is of you in your uh, Tesla. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to get one of the first Teslas that was sold to the general public. Um, the you didn't beta trustee... test it, though, no? What? It wasn't a beta test, no? No, 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 no. It's definitely not a beta test. So it was the 2000th one that came off the, the uh, manufacturing line. And uh, one of the trustees at Caltech was kind enough to uh, help me... Um, uh, get a place on the on the waiting list and at that point I, I love fast cars and so I guess I was on my third or fourth Porsche and um, and I which I loved and they're they're fast and they're fun but they're also noisy and they're probably not the most uh, energy efficient in the world and the Tesla just had so many fun things about it um, including that it could out-accelerate the, uh, the Porsche. So I thought I was going to keep both. And within the first uh, two weeks, I started arranging to sell the Porsche because I'd get into the Porsche and I would think it was broken. So, so you've got a, a very swish, a very designer-driven car. But yeah. I'm looking at your house behind, and that also looks very designer-driven. So tell yeah, us a little so, about the house. Yeah, so um, I, I, I like uh, architecture and I like architects. Um, so this is a house built by Rudolf Schindler, who is an Austrian uh, architect who came to the US and worked, his first jobs were, was uh, sort of being the uh, deputy architect of Frank Lloyd Wright for most of the projects built in uh, Southern California. And he and Richard Neutra actually lived together and uh, developed some things together. So some of his early uh, designs, Neutra did the uh, landscaping for because he didn't have his, uh, his paperwork yet to be an official architect. Um, so, so this is a house built by Rudolf Schindler for a composer and, uh, and radio uh, personality. Um, he uh, had an unusual set of friends and so the and a few unusual set of demands so he needed a house where he could have uh, musical performances and so the living room has cork flooring and and ceilings that are higher and canted um, and and Schindler is an artist about uh, stealing space so Schindler makes buildings the way that cells or the way that organisms do things, right? It's not, there's, so the closet, I can show you over here. That's, I don't know if you can see the closet. Yeah. Oh yeah. The closets are actually, uh, they look like they're about an inch deep, but they're not. And it's because the, they steal space out of the bathroom that's through the wall. In, the, in the, the linen closets look like they're about that deep because they steal space from the next room over as well. So he puts the things together, taking advantage of virtual space in the same way that, that organs pack into a body, right? And, and so it's a, it's a really fun house. Um, so George Rodriguez, the composer that it was built for, his friends included Salvador Dali and Ansel Adams and Picasso and the whole sort of modern music scene around uh, Los Angeles. And uh, so it's, it's, it's great fun. Uh, there's almost a fellowship of Schindler owners uh, and, and there's also almost a fellowship of people that like to work on and help work on the restoration. So as with any old house, uh, the woodwork in many of the places had been painted over instead of being the natural wood, like the windows behind me were all white. Um, and so uh, we got tradesmen that loved the restoring houses and helped us to strip off the paint. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun adventure. I think, Scott, you are living my dream. 
Well, when you're midway through rebuilding a thing like this, uh, dream is not the right term. Nightmare is the right term because there are many things that needed to get built and rebuilt. And of course, when you take anything, so you we'd remove something and there could be a treasure behind it. Like uh, Schindler used to come onto job sites and redraw plans on the walls. And so we found a couple places where he had uh, redesigned a part of the house because the owner wanted some change. Uh, but it was written on the wall, that was the blueprint. Um, so that's the good treasures. And you can imagine the other sort of treasures you can find behind that are uh, old plumbing that, that's uh, past its prime and other things. So it's not the most low stress uh, thing. It's, it's, like, it's like resubmitting a grant yeah. <laughs> or, or worse. Yeah, don't compare it to resubmitting the grant. Uh, a quick question, what is your favorite microscope? I've got my favorite microscope. What is your favorite microscope? Oh, I there is something I love about the old industrial microscopes that Zeiss used to build. And so my first interaction with the scope, as we were talking about earlier, was a Zeiss Universal uh, that was in bits and pieces. Uh, when I first started my lab, you could buy the different parts from the industrial house. Either I built some scopes from Nikon, some from, uh, from parts from Zeiss, and especially from the industrial things. So we used a Zeiss UEM, which was a universal optics, but it was built for the electronics industry. And it was the thing that we did most of our um, intracellular injections on and most of our imaging on because we could bolt together the different pieces. I love the elegance of the new scopes, just like I love the elegance of the Tesla and I love the elegance of new sports cars. But my first Porsche was great because that's one that I think you could do all the repairs with maybe three tools and everything was clear how it was bolted in and you could probably easily stand in, in any of the places you needed to get to, to repair something. Um, so, um, so I love those old scopes. I, I was around uh, Woods Hole when the Axiomat came out. And I don't know if you remember the Axiomat from Zeiss, but it was a giant, I think about a meter on a side. In my mind's eye, it's even bigger, but I'm sure it wasn't even a meter but it was an optical uh, system that was designed so that you could take different parts and stack them in different ways and make an inverted scope by swapping yeah. the parts around. And so that was great fun too. So I, I missed those days of scopes that you could bolt and unbolt and change. So, um, so that's your favorite microscope or microscopes, I guess, sort of an era, a generation of microscopes. Mm -hmm. Tricky question though. What is your favorite publication that you've authored or been part of? Oh, I love papers that come out wrong. So, yeah. um, so one of ours, we uh, years ago were imaging how optic nerve fibers found their targets in the brain. And it was just after some of the neurotrophic factors and neurotrophic factor receptors had been identified and we showed that they were there in the system and we all knew exactly what was gonna happen, that there was gonna be trophic factors that changed the withdrawal of the cells, of the, the neurites away from their, the target cells yeah. if we limited the amount of the neurotrophic factor. And uh, so using our, um, our imaging approach and we started doing all this low light imaging so we could watch lineages as they diversified or watch fibers as they would connect. Um, we uh, perturbed the neurotrophic factor environment. We either blocked or added extra neurotrophic factor. <clears throat> and um, it's clear that the animal had not read our draft of the paper uh, because it did exactly the opposite. So in the presence of the neurotrophic factor, the fibers branch <clears throat> profusely, 
And in the absence of it, they branched less. So it looked like it was not something that blocked the retraction, but but fostered the the arborization of the fibers in that region. Um, so that that was a nature paper that was just a, a blast because it um, it came out um, you know the opposite of the way we thought it was going to. Um, similarly, another nature paper that was with Andrew Lumsden and Roger Keynes is one of my favorite, because there we were labeling individual neuronal precursors and then watching them diversify in the hindbrain of a, uh, of a chicken embryo. And again, we knew, we thought we knew how it was going to turn out because by that point we'd done the neural crest and the retina and we found that the cells were very pluripotent. And what we found, again, the, the cells had not bothered to read our, our draft. Uh, the cells ended up being uh, largely um, identical in their uh, cell types. And they also uh, ended up uh, obeying uh, lineage restrictions, which we did think was going to happen at the, at the rhombomere boundaries in the hindbrain. So, so for me, what's really fun about experiments and what's really fun about microscopy is it lets you address what really does happen. And I love coming up with, with experiments where, where we get surprised, where we find out it's uh, completely different than we thought it was. Some of the images. So I've, I've got another image up here. Ah, yeah. Usually striking. So, so, so yeah, what is this so, yeah, so this is a rendering done by Seth Ruffins, who's a, just a spectacular uh, uh, molecular biologist, developmental biologist, but, but also computer scientist. And he's uh, worked with us for quite some time and now has his own position at USC in the stem cell department. But when we moved to Caltech, we started doing uh, joint development of light microscopy and MRI microscopy. And so that is a quail embryo at older stages than we were doing the lineages of the, in the hindbrain and all, but that's taken by a microscopic MRI and that's a quail embryo still inside of its shell. And so we were able in uh, live quail and live xenopus and other systems that were optically hostile to image inside and watch as organs took shape and as uh, embryos patterned. And then of course, one of the real challenges, and I think it's a challenge that faces all of us right now, is how do we present, you know, gigavoxels of data in a way that's intuitive. And where Seth Ruffins was an artist, he, uh, he could make renderings that seemed intuitive, right? That, um, Obviously, the, the, there's not a lot of shadows inside of a quail egg, but you can see ways that he used the shadowing and other things to really give it a three-dimensionality. And in many of the different uh, MRI microscopy things we were doing at the time with a colleague of mine, Russell Jacobs, uh, who's the real driving force of the MRI, uh, we uh, you know, we could we really park ourselves inside and watch as structure uh, took place. Watch as ears were built and as hearts were built and things of that sort. That's a stunning picture. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, MRI to light microscopy is quite a big step. There's very few that, 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 that really cover that breadth of technologies. And you, you've obviously had a lot of interactions with MRIs, still having a lot of inter interactions with MRIs. So, your team, is it mostly light microscopists? Is it mostly sound biologists, MRI? What, what, what's, yeah, what, so, what's the composure so of your team? I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I love trying to get disciplines to play well together. And I was very lucky in, in, when I was at UC Irvine. Uh, the person that I shared a coffee pot uh, with was Russell Jacobs, who was developing uh, microscopic MRI tools out of uh, machines that were meant to do chemical NMR. And so he was making the little MRI coils that would be in a normal human size uh, 
NMR or MRI, but down to the size of, say, a frog embryo or a, or a quail or things of that sort. And uh, this is where the lesson about the coffee machine came, because every day we would come from opposite ends of the building to the shared coffee pot and stand there and, and either celebrate or commiserate. And, and then we'd go back away. And so when I moved to Caltech, Russ came along and he headed a part of the lab that did MRI. Um, and we were able to bring in Thomas Mead, who is a really gifted chemist, and he headed up a probe development effort in the lab. And so what we tried to do is make agents that could sort of act as the Rosetta Stone. So we made uh, genetically encoded uh, or chemicals that would allow us to do genetically encoded labeling with, with MRI. We made a lot of bifunctional agents that we could see in the fluorescence microscope or the confocal microscope, and then also see in the MRI. And you're right that there was a real void uh, MRI is sort of a, a technique where the individual voxels are a millimeter, maybe even larger than that. Light microscopy at a millimeter, you no longer have very many ballistic photons. Yep. And so it's like a huge gap. And so part of why we started building better and better two photon microscopes and trying to make, um, you know, because we saw that as one of the sort of frontiers we needed to deal with but it was to get closer to the MRI. And the MRI, we were trying to make it a higher and higher resolution. So finally, Russ got the MRI down to about uh, well, a few microns on a side of the voxel. And we were then able to look inside and see things inside of frog embryos that were just invisible by light microscopy because of the light scattering of the cells. Um, so we never got it to where they overlapped tremendously, but they, they did sort of contact one another and, uh, and we were able to do some bifunctional agents that were really pretty powerful. <clears throat> I, I, you should say you, had, you didn't quite get there yet. Don't give up. Oh, so that's, that's the goal now. So is how do, we, how do we make it so that these technologies meet one another? And um, you know, we're trying to do that uh, with the help now of some machine learning and other sort of tools of, um, of dealing with either ultra fast imaging or ultra low signal imaging or signals that have very low amount of light going through. So, so really trying to redefine the, the impossible, I guess. Right now, you know, if anything that we say in the lab, if I want to try to get somebody to work on it, the way I do it is I say, oh, no, that's impossible. And, you know, nothing motivates people more than proving me wrong in the lab. And nice. so, so that's, that's a great motivating tool. The other great motivating tool is that most of the people in the lab, when they leave, take their project with them. So there's oodles of projects that we loved and really enjoyed, but as the people left, the project with, went with them. So we always had to find something new that was impossible to play with. And so, um, so we've, you know, I mentioned the retinotectal uh, arbors earlier. There's postdocs that went off and, and made that into their, their uh, career rather than us continuing on it. That makes it sound like your team. I, I, I've inspired and, and and admire you, but you also sent me. I've got these pictures, where I, I'm sure this cardboard cutout is of one of your lab begging yeah. you. Yeah, maybe so you, you definitely do not want to uh, to be a imaging lab uh, if you, if you don't uh, like to laugh at yourself. So uh, uh, that's a cutout. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, being shot at? Yeah, that's a that's a physics student the water gun. shooting me. Yeah, this one. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what's happening there, but I don't think it's very good. That's a, yeah. a very great grad student, but uh, he was he was getting near finishing, and I think he his emotions may be showing. Yeah, I, I, that face and that that that. Uh, I, I, boa is it a feather boa around your yeah, neck for that one? Boa. And yeah. Uh, and, so, and finally, yeah, this oh, yeah, like what being chucked off a building. 
Yes, that student, I think, has two different things in the video they made for my birthday. So they, they made this uh, cutout of me at one of the grad students' parties for their PhD. And then they uh, took this cutout all over town uh, to places that had mechanical bulls. I think it tried to break into a jewelry store, uh, several other things. But this, it was dropped off the building. Its head was cut off. It was uh, multi-purpose. So uh, imaging tools can, can really uh, be used in creative ways. Yeah, I, I can see that just how much they really love you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just change changing tack altogether. This, this is you, isn't it? Hold, hold, what is it you're holding? I am holding a wombat. So uh, I I love traveling, and I think I sent you this picture because I I was looking through a folder uh, of of one of my uh, old assistants' uh, uh, pictures from the lab. That's where the the cutout pictures were. So this is when I was traveling uh, to a meeting in Australia. And uh, afterwards, I went to one of the nearby zoos. And it was a very slow day in the zoo. And so um, I was invited into the koala uh, enclosure and got to, to go and communicate with the, with the koalas and, uh, in ways that would never happen in normal zoos. Uh, I was walking by and the person uh, working with the wombat sort of, you know, said, do you want to come and hold the wombat? <laughs> and uh, there's only one answer to that question. Af after holding the koala, it seemed uh, appropriate. It's, uh, so it's great to go traveling. It's great to go to meetings. And it's just amazing what you can learn and what you can find uh, while out walking in the countryside or through a deserted zoo or a wildlife park, I guess this was. Uh, everything so far has sounded brilliant, but no career goes without its challenges. So I've got just a few minutes left. What have been some of the greatest challenges that you've had to encounter? How did you over what was, what was the most difficult time of your career and, and how did you overcome that? There, there are many, luckily there's been no major horrible times in the career, but it, it, it is very ironic. You mentioned the meta before. So we had the prototype of the meta that we had built, then we had the prototype that Zeiss had built, and then I wrote a shared equipment grant at Caltech to buy one, and the study section um, questioned whether we needed one, and uh, so that, that might have been a career low point to have the scope that you uh, helped give birth to uh, be viewed as, as something beyond your capabilities to use. Uh, Next but time it, you need to write into that contract with Zeiss when you do something like that, say you need to, you, part of that deal is that you get the first system as part of it. Yeah, so, so in fact, we did end up getting a, a system from, from Zeiss. And uh, when we were involved in doing the Five Live, we did the, the same thing. So we ended up with the Five Live in the, in the lab as well. So um, yeah, so we've learned. The other hard things, I guess, is that uh, it's different than in Europe, but, but grants in the US, grant proposals in the US, often um, get listed as overly ambitious if you're proposing to do anything you haven't already done. And uh, so one of the frustrating things is trying to write up grants, uh, grant proposals on uh, work that's sounds less venturesome than what you're really going to do because that's what you can uh, manage to have the study sections approve. Um, I've always wanted to do a compilation of the things that um, were impossible according to the study section that then ended up being very nice science or nature papers. And I think probably every one of them uh, we had a, a, such a review. So that's always fun. Um, with any with any scientist, there's always the dread reviewer three, um, and so, so the dark times happen. It can happen often with that sort of thing. 
but at least with papers, you get the chance to argue back. And in grant proposals, it's not as easy. Okay, so I, because I, I, actually, I think the UK certainly has been very encouraging of blue sky thinking and uh, yes. going, go, going for very high risk. They're encouraging some of the techn technology calls to be very high risk. They don't want something that's going to just what they want it because right. high risk is generally much higher impact. Uh, and I, I, I'll come to it in a minute because I remember one referee's comments coming back on a grant that was successful and was really negative. Uh, but how do you rebut? Uh, you've got maybe two glorious, excellent, outstanding, internationally successful type, this will be great, reviews. And then you've got one. Uh, you, there's two problems. One that's damning, really doesn't like it at all uh, and criticizes it at every angle. And the other one, which is, yeah, it's okay. This is fine. Which is down yeah. by faint praise and much harder to yeah. rebut. So quick, very quickly, how do you rebut those two situations diplomatically? Well, what I, what I love is it, if somebody goes completely nonlinear and, and all, it actually sometimes helps. So we, we got a transformative R01 grant because um, a lot of the reviews said this would be spectacular. And then uh, the other review said these people are insane. And luckily, the funding agency uh, said, well, this is just the right sort of thing. If, if half the people think it'd be great if it worked, then the other things think it's impossible. So, so pointing out that uh, is great. I, I think the, the hardest thing is dealing with the damning with faint praise. And the one that we um, finally talked our way around with a resubmission, but was hard, is somebody said that the impact of the work that this postdoc was proposing would be about the same as adding one more digit to pi. And uh, which I did not take as high praise, nor did right. the uh, program officer. So needless to say, we did not get that uh, postdoctoral fellowship funded. So the damning with faint praise is the hard thing. The, oh, it's, 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 uh, I guess in the UK you'd say it's quite good. Yeah, but if that last digit of pi was the last number and it wasn't, <laughs> you'd just solve pi forever. See, so you could have flipped it, shouldn't you? We, we could have made pi into a rational number. That would have just been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> should have come back at that. Yeah. That'd be <laughs> I, I should have thought, I should have called you up and you could have written the rebuttal for me. Oh, no, uh, rebuttals are okay. I, I, writing, I need to be in the right my, frame of mind to write. I can't just write. Yeah. Uh, I can write rubbish really well. But to write things you know, really I've, well. I've read your papers. I would agree. <laughs> Jeez, Sorry, uh, I, I, I have an evil sense of humor. So, <laughs> no, but. I, I've, I've, I've liked your papers, so I don't mean to, to <laughs> that, bring that, it up. That's why I get others to write my work up. It's much easier. Ah, ah. So you've just damned my whole team and all my ah. past members, thanks. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, before we finish, have you got any advice for anyone starting out in their career? Because uh, you are where you are now. At the start, is that where you thought you would be? In so many ways it is, because when I started, I wanted it to remain fun and remain innovative. And one of the things that I just love is that uh, being in science is like a fountain of youth. You're always interacting with the next bright-eyed grad student or postdoc or research scientist and, uh, and always trying to do something new. So that's, that's exactly where I hoped to, to be. I think though that um, my word of advice would be always listen to words of advice and then ignore most of them <laughs> because the, the, nobody's experience is going to be completely relevant. So I, I'm always when, when assistant professors come to me and they've, they've got a steering committee that's given them advice that they don't want to take. I, I always try to mentor them to say, well, listen to it, try to understand what they're saying and why, um, and then do what it is you want to do. So um, I think that there's something very valuable in listening carefully and then selectively attending to which of those things you want to learn.
and you've just said that to all your team that will watch this back and they'll now know whatever you tell them to do, they can completely ignore it. They do. So one of the best things about teaching at Woods Hole is I would leave for two or three months to go to Woods Hole and, you know, opposite side of the country. They would work 10 times harder than they ever worked when I was in town to prove that I was not needed. So my job when I returned was to have to act very, very disappointed that they'd had amazing new insights while I was gone. Because, you know, that's just horrible. I mean, the lab moved forward without me. Uh, so so it, it is very interesting. And I think that, uh, that the number of, of innovations that have happened around labs around the world by students that ignored what their committee told them or what their mentor told them um, well, there's a, there's a lot of them, and I think there's a lot of lessons in that, to, to listen carefully, but then selectively ignore. So, so you inspire by absence, and I, I would also <laughs> say that you're inspired yes. in your past, and it's thanks to you that actually inspired uh, these meetings that I'm having now. So, Scott, okay. thank you very, very much. You've been brilliant to catch up with. As well, always. thank you. It's, it's great to catch up with you. And I, I hope this isn't our only chance to, to catch up. And yeah. I, I hope as, uh, as things move forward that we'll have other things to chat about. If only we had a cappuccino machine halfway in between our labs. Yeah, I have a, I've got the espresso. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's close. I didn't see if you had people bringing them in during the meeting, but anyway. No, well, it's a cold espresso now. It's only a bit Oh, okay, okay. Well, thanks so much. Pleasure, Scott. And I, I look forward to uh, trying one of your cappuccinos. Brilliant. Okay. That'll Thank be you. great. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.